G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Who is it you want? They said, Jesus the Nazarene or Jesus of Nazareth. They replied, I am he. Hi, and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today, the message is called, It Must Fall Down. Pastor Jeff is speaking about trusting in God and knowing He is all-powerful. We must be careful not to assume how He will work in our lives. This is not falling down and worshipping. This is falling down when you're overwhelmed, frightened, and you're scared, you're terrified. 600 to 1,000 warriors drop down just like that. This is Today with Jeff Vines. All right, good morning, everybody. Glad you're with us. Glad you're part of us. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 18. John 18, powerful passage. Uh, life, for the most part, is a balancing act, isn't it? It's, it's trying to, to face these dilemmas that we face and, and trying to do things with, with great wisdom and guidance and balance the way we approach things so that we don't go too far one way or the other. Uh, child raising, right? You want to discipline your child, but you don't want to be so hard on them that you don't give them a little freedom to discover things, who they are and who they're meant to be. Uh, Finances, that's a dilemma. Uh, You want to save enough so that when you get older, you can actually retire somewhere, but at the same time, you don't want to save everything to where you're having no fun right now. Wouldn't it be terrible if you just saved everything for the future and you die? I mean... (laughs) Well, it wouldn't be terrible because you go to heaven, but you know the point. You know the point. So there's that balance of what do I save, what do I keep, and what do I do now? Uh, One of the greatest balancing acts I ever had was when I was dating my wife. Now, let me tell you a little story here. Yeah, I mean, isn't that amazing? Hard to believe, isn't it? Hard to believe, hard to believe. Now, remember, that was the 80s, so be kind, be kind. And you guys in the back, if you don't take that off the screen, yeah, sure, everything else just flips up. Yeah, I see how this goes. Just flip it up, take it off. But that one, you leave on there, don't you? You do realize people could have taken photos of that while you were doing that. Uh, We went to a place called Johnson University, but then it was called Johnson Bible College. So the initials were JBC. And some people aptly named it uh, a pun, you know, Johnson Bridal College. And the reason they called it that is you had a bunch of young men and a bunch of young women coming to the same university And they had great intentions to go into full-time ministry. And so inevitably, when you get groups of people like that together, you're going to have young men looking for a wife to go into ministry with them. And they would want to do that. Otherwise, they wouldn't be at this school. And you're going to have young women looking for a husband who will go into ministry with them. So you had this dynamic happening. But my wife is smart enough to know that this was happening. And so some, some women would get just a little bit standoffish now. You just want a wife. And I'm not doing that. Uh, if you went through Johnson Bible College or Johnson University and you got to your junior, senior year and you weren't yet attached, you know, you, you, you kind of had a little bitterness about that and jokes started flying around. Uh, one joke went around, 
And obviously it was started by, by the men. What's the difference between Johnson University women and trash? And the answer is trash gets taken out twice a week. Now, that's from the guys. Hold on, hold on. We're, that's from the guys. The girls fired back too. And here's the girls. They would say, oh yeah, well, did you hear about the man-eating lion that showed up on Johnson University campus? Yeah, it starved to death. Because <laughs> there's no men. So it came on both sides. Uh, so I knew that Robin knew this was the culture. So I had to balance between letting her know that I'm interested without being too aggressive to scare her away. Now, as it turns out, I've told you this story before, she ended up chasing me and I don't care what she tells you or anybody else. <laughs> she ended up chasing me. Now, I want you, you're here now. So you made it here. Uh, you had other things you could have done. And I want you to sit back for a moment. I want you to go through this text with me. And I want you to listen. This is one of those weekends where, as I said to you last weekend, it's a little bit later in the day. There's going to be distractions come your way and you're going to have to focus and concentrate. These last two messages are kind of the messages that can really change you. They can change your perspective and can really have an impact on you that you would walk out of here differently than you were when you first came in. So you have to focus because here's my dilemma now. Folks, I grew up in a little church called East Side Christian Church, a little bitty church in the eastern part of Tennessee. The best way I can describe this church to you is by the word boring. <laughs> Just boring. Okay, that's two words. You wondered if they really believed what they said they believed. I mean, the worship service was anything but a worship service. It was like, when's it over? And it was so predictable. First, second, and last of this song. First, second, and last of this song. Then you knew what was coming next. Then you knew what was coming next. And the preacher was kind of like a used car salesman. And it was the same sermon every weekend. You're all sinners and you're going to hell. <laughs> every weekend you heard this. Now, it's amazing. God used even that because I had a great Sunday school teacher at this church that got the word of God into me and served as a foundation on which I would interpret the events of my life as I grew older. But the point is, this church, I just couldn't quite figure it out. It looked like a funeral every weekend. And the, the highlight was when all the elders gathered together after church and went out on the front steps and smoked a cigarette. <laughs> you could tell they just couldn't wait to do that. And so you walked through the, what you first might assume was the Holy of Holies, but then you found out it was just nicotine, smoke. And I knew most of the people because it was a small town and I knew what they were like Monday to Friday was nothing like what we talked about on the weekend. Even at a young age, I yearned for something more. I wanted something that was more, for the lack of a better word, and I'm not getting new age on you, so just wait, existential, something that could be felt. Something that could be experienced. I knew God was real by objective truth, but there had to be something subjective that would come along with him. And when I was a little older, some friends of mine took me to Cincinnati, Ohio, to a church we were visiting. And I walked in and at first I thought, this is it. People were just happy. They were just happy. You got free donuts. Free Dunkin' Donuts. In the worship service, people were all standing. It was unpredictable. You didn't know what was going to happen. You know, people were happy. They were smiling at each other. The sermon 
began to happen and he was creative and he had some good things to say. But then it turned. And just when I got my hopes up, something didn't sit well. Suddenly, it looked more like pastor worship than Jesus worship. And he started using phrases I'd never heard and they made me very uncomfortable. He started commanding Jesus to do things. And that made me very nervous. And then he just left Jesus out of it completely and started commanding what he commanded. And he became a little bit of a showman in the way he would dance and move around. And then they started calling people on the stage that come up and he said he was going to heal people. And he would claim that he'd heal people, but it was clear after they went by him, they weren't healed. But it's like they all talked themselves into it. And then the final clincher for me was when they brought a 13-year-old girl in a wheelchair up. And he did this thing that kind of got weird. And they all said, yeah, she's healed. And, but she couldn't get up and walk. And so four or five of them got her and walked her across the stage. But her legs weren't moving. And everybody was shouting, yay. So I didn't want that. And I didn't want that. So I'm a man without a country. So I'm a man without a church. Something was wrong there and something was wrong there. But the problem is that I went too far the other way. This is what happens. You know, you're, you're affected and impacted by your life. And so what happened to me in my 20s was anytime I heard any pastor talk about prayer for healing or God moving in a certain way, it took me right back to that experience and I ran away from it. So here I am now at the age of 52. And even though I only look 35, the, the reality is that I am now facing the ultimate pastoral dilemma. And I want to walk you through this. I told you I would always be honest with you and you have to be able to take that. So here's my honesty. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Pastor Jeff's message is, it must fall down. He's talking about trying to hold our own agenda in the presence of God. Ultimately, he's in charge. Let's continue now. Here's my honesty. I do believe, and I say it all the time, that God can take the chaos of your life and bring beauty and pattern and design into it. I go to the garden and I see Jesus begging the Father. I see him anxious, afraid. I see him sweating drops of blood, recognizing that he's about to experience something for which he is not prepared and of which he's not familiar He's going to be separated from God the Father. This perfect unity and diversity is about to suffer a separation. And I don't see him commanding God. I see him begging God, let this cup pass. Take this cup away from me. He continues to pray out to God. God, please take it away. Is there another way? Is there plan B? He assumes that God is powerful enough to take the cup away. But in the end, he stands up with a resolution and he says what? Not my will, but yours be done. I have preached that message all my life. I have said that in order for us to make it in life, I know of no other way to live. We have to assume that God is sovereign. And that based on what he did for us on the cross, we can trust him for the present and the future. But you have to be careful You can go too far to where you start thinking you know how God is going to respond to everything. Because here's the dilemma. John 18 now, they're in the garden. And let me summarize it and then I'll put it on the screen. It says that Jesus had finished praying 
And he left with his disciples and crossed over the Kidron Valley. And on the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. And it says that Judas betrayed him, the one who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. It says that Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers. This is a Roman cohort and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. And they're all carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And then verse four says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, wait a minute. Who is it that's coming to arrest Jesus? You've got two groups of people. First, you've got a detachment of soldiers, a Roman cohort. This is anywhere between 600 and 1,000 people. (laughs) 600 to 1,000 Roman soldiers coming to arrest Jesus and his farmer fishermen disciples who've never had a fight in their lives. The Roman cohort would have been there because during the Passover, you got thousands and thousands of Israelites who make their way into the city of Jerusalem to the festivities. And the Israelites were always just one loud voice away from revolt. They detested the fact that they were occupied by the Romans. So you get that many Israelites together in one place, Romans or the Romans would send a cohort. They had their intelligence to protect the outer skirts of the city, to make sure who gets in, who gets out. Now at the same time, while you've got the Roman cohort, you've also got the officials and the chief priests and Pharisees. These are the temple police. So the Romans are guarding the exterior. And because the Jewish leaders didn't want any trouble, the religious leaders didn't want to get in trouble with the Romans, they also had their police force and they would guard the inner parts of the city and the outer parts of the temple to say who gets in and out of the temple and what you carry in with you. Both of these officials have a lot of power and authority But neither of them believe that Jesus is anything special. In fact, the people who come to arrest Jesus are the Roman soldiers, 600 to 1,000. They didn't even believe in a Messiah. The temple police, they did believe in a Messiah, but definitely not Jesus. And they wanted to kill him because they thought he was a blasphemer. And then the third entity is Judas, who the Bible says, having received the detachment of troops, in other words, he's working in cahoots with the secular leaders and the religious leaders, and that he wants to put an end to Jesus' life, they all come into the garden. None of them believe in the identity of who Jesus really is, and they all come to arrest him. So you got Judas, you got the Romans, a cohort of soldiers between 600 and 1,000 and the Jewish authorities. Now, why do they bring so many weapons? The Romans would have had their intelligence. The Bible says they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons, daggers, and swords, It's almost like they came ready for a resistance, but based on what? There's no history of them resisting. I just think it's humorous. You know, there's a saying that says, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Well, this is more like bringing an atomic bomb to a squirt gunfight. These guys aren't military men. They're fishermen, farmers, and a couple of tax collectors. So imagine Jesus with the few of the disciples in this Roman cohort, this 600 to 1,000 men in the army, well-dressed, ready for battle, ready for war, marching up to arrest Jesus. 
You say, well, it's not true, Jeff, that they weren't violent. After all, the scripture says that Peter was hiding a dagger, not a sword, but a dagger in his cloak. And he took it out and he chopped off Malchus's ear. But what happened? Jesus immediately told him to put the sword away. That's not who we are. That's not how we do business. They come to arrest Jesus, not because they respect him. Now, this is important. They're not in awe of Jesus. They don't respect him. They don't see him anything special. They come because they believe he's a rebellious, treasonous, blasphemous psychopath that needs to be arrested. Verse four, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. 600 to 1,000 warriors, when Jesus said, I am he, drew back and fell to the ground. You know what the Greek means here? The Greek means that they drew back and fell to the ground. <laughs> this is not like the scene out of Revelation 5, where at the end of time, that every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea, they'll begin to sing a song. And the words are, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is not falling down and worshiping. This is falling down when you're overwhelmed, frightened, and you're scared, you're terrified. 600 to 1,000 warriors dropped down just like that. You say, well, they heard Jesus was powerful, but that's not what soldiers do when they come up against the power. These are well-trained Roman warriors. When you come up against the power, you dig in, you defend your position, you ready yourself for a fight. What on earth is happening? Let me give you a clue. This is life-changing stuff, man. Who is it you want? Jesus said. They said, Jesus of the Nazarene or Jesus of Nazareth. They replied, I am he, Jesus said, and they fell to the ground. You know why? Because what Jesus actually said in the original language is ego of me, which any basic Greek scholar will tell you is translated like this. I am. That's it. If you know anything about the Hebrew culture, they did not say the name of God. It was so sacred, so holy. This is called the Tetragrammaton. It's the four Hebrew letters representing the name of God. We filled in the vowel points, so we pronounce it Yahweh. But anytime you see this in the Old Testament scriptures, it could be 7,000 times you see it. It could be translated Almighty or the Almighty or the Most High or Lord with every letter in caps. Do you see what Jesus has done? Who are you looking for? Jesus the Nazarene. I am. You recognize that? It's when Moses went to God and said, God, who do I say sent me? These Egyptians aren't going to believe that I'm anything special. They know that I lived in the palace. And these Israelites are going to doubt me as well. They know I'm one of them. They know who I am. Who shall I say sending me to take these Israelites out of Egyptian bondage? And who should I say sending me to Pharaoh that I'm taking away all his slaves? And what was God's response? Exodus 3, 14, God said to Moses, you tell him I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am. I just am. I have no beginning. I have no end. Jesus, to just make sure that it was all clear, said, very truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. 
Jesus says, who are you looking for? Jesus the Nazarene. I am. And hundreds collapsed in a heap on the ground. These great strong soldiers, these angry, hostile, aggressive temple police, the religious leaders, they bow down, not out of reverence, because you cannot stand in the presence of God. You see what Jesus is communicating here? Jesus is saying, okay, you can take me, but don't think for a second you're in charge. Don't misinterpret my meekness for weakness. I will allow you to take me to the cross, but watch yourself. I love this. There's a new book out, To the Ecstasy of My Son Delaney, called Star Wars and Philosophy. <laughs> In the book, it contrasts the intricacies of evil and good in quite a creative way. So you've got Yoda, ultimate good, and Palpatine, the ultimate leader of the dark side. Both are calm and cool and deliberate, powerful. The major difference is one, Yoda is selfless. The other is self-serving. One is meek and humble. The other is arrogant and prideful. But both have enormous power. My favorite scene in any Star Wars movie comes near the end of Attack of the Clones. And it's when Yoda has been walking around the entire movie. You know, like this, with a little crutch. You think, man, is Yoda going to make it to the end of this movie? <laughs> Speaks cleverly, he does. <laughs> hmm, lost the planet, Master Obi-Wan has. How embarrassing. He says, clear your mind must be if you are to discover the real villains behind this plot. So he walks around in meekness the entire movie. And then near the end of it, he's in a battle one-on-one -on -one with Count Dooku, Palpatine's evil apprentice. And he says to Yoda, you've intervened in our affairs for the last time. And then they both show their power over the force. And they come to a standstill, a stalemate. And they both agree the only way to settle this battle is through lightsabers. Of course, it's Star Wars. And suddenly... I remember laughing so hard when I was at Glendora Theater when I saw this. Wait a minute, that wouldn't have been Glendora. Attack of the, another story. Wherever I was in the world at the time, I remember laughing so hard because suddenly Yoda comes alive, man. He's doing 360s in midair. He's jumping everywhere. He's, he's doing backflips, half and full pikes to perfect landings. He's climbing and running up the wall. And everybody's just laughing because of what happened to Yoda. <laughs> And everybody in the theater is laughing. And although you can't hear it, I'm sure they were all saying, misunderstood his calmness and meekness we have. <laughs> when they come to get Jesus in the garden, he gives them one final display. Just so they know, just so you know who I am. Don't ever underestimate me. Be careful. Be careful that you don't allow something that has ingrained itself into your mind change the way you approach God.
This is Today with Jeff Vines. That's all we have time for, but we will continue to look at our want to somehow control God and the way He operates next time on the program. You have no guarantees of what is going to happen tomorrow. You don't. We know that. The only way for us to make it through this world is to know that there is a sovereign God and He is able to take all the chaos in life and still bring beauty and pattern and design into it. Today with Jeff Vines, just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.